you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer, David Faber, coming to you live from different locations this morning. We're coming off the worst day in about two weeks. Uh, futures do trim their gains as uh, jobless claims come in 6.6 million, a staggering record beyond precedent. There is plenty to watch, including Boeing, Disney, Zoom, Starbucks. And Oil Jim, which was set for its best day in about three weeks on the president's comments about the Russians and the Saudis. I know you were discussing that a couple of moments ago. Yeah, look, I think that there's a sense that somehow you get a bunch of oil executives with the president. The president then calls Saudi Arabia and calls the Russians and say, let's stop this. Of course, the Saudis are flooding the world with oil right now. They don't even know where to put it. The Russians, it's not clear where the heck they are because they're very secretive. But I know who's not there, the drivers. There is very little demand. And David and I talk about this with you all the time, Carl. There's this overall sense that, you know what, if we just get things moving, things will come back again. We need customers. We need customers to get their hair cut. We need customers to be able to go to the dry cleaner, to the restaurants. And we need customers on the road. And without them, I really don't care what president calls who. You need a tariff to keep the, China, the, to keep, um, uh, the Saudi oil from coming here and you need the Chinese to restockpile. And frankly, that is still not going to be enough to be able to make it so oil real demand goes higher. Yeah, right. you know, Jim, you talked about this. We, yeah, sorry, Carl. Uh, to, well, um, <laughs> six million barrels a day, Jim, is what I'm hearing right now as we still try to adjust, even though we know each other's cadences so well. Uh, six million barrels a day uh, here. And it's not just it's not just cars, Jim. It's jet fuel, too. Let's not forget uh, that is also not being consumed anywhere near the way it had been. Twenty four million barrels a day right now of oversupply in the global oh. market. You know, Russia and Saudi can do all they want. They can go to zero. And it still sounds like we're going to have an issue. We do not have. This is what's amazing. People don't understand. There is no spigot to oil. Uh, the, the late Oliver McClendon always used to tell me, look, the one thing that oil producers know to do is to produce oil. We are still doing 13 million, 13 million barrels a day here. Nobody has throttled back. So, I mean, think about that. We are almost out of supply. This is why I continue to believe that those who buy S&P futures off of oil futures are doomed to lose money. And that's what's happening right now. Yeah, Jim. Uh, Credit Suisse has a great list out this morning with S&P companies with the most cash, which is largely FANG, no surprise, and the least. And the least is Exxon, Kinder, Noble, Diamondback, along with American and Carnival. Uh, Exxon. And all that leverage is, is just coming home to roost. Exxon yeah. borrowed money to be able to pay that dividend. The only co- company that I think has the, the ability, the wherewithal to pay the big dividend is Mike Worth and Chevron. And one of the reasons he does is because he didn't win the Adarco, uh, Anadarko bidding. Hey, David, how, does that, how was that in the end? How did that work, the Anadarko? We know how it worked. Oh, and, stop uh, it. Just uh, play with me. Maybe for the last time. 
You were right, uh, of course, in, re in recognizing the enormous risk that Oxy took on in paying that big price for Anadarko. The Permian assets are still, of course, seen as worth something. I pointed out a number of times, though it doesn't appear, even though Carl Icahn has gotten right. a certain element of control at Occidental, that there's going to be a sale anytime soon from what, what I hear. It may be quite some time. But what you're talking about, Jim, is a fundamental deterioration in this business, the likes of which we have not Never. seen in a very, maybe ever. And, ever. and, and they're going to run out of places to put the oil. I mean, Cushing is already running out, right? I'm looking at it's in the terms last of place. how yeah. much was left there. Hey, look, uh, there's still some reserve in Cushing. From what I'm told, it's from people who believe that, you know what, oil's going to go to 5 to 10. Uh, Permian, again, at 10. A lot of oil uh, is still not, it can't even be produced anymore. Uh, because it, the prices, you know, you talk about $35, $40. By the way, one of the reasons I mentioned Oxy is it looks like that they need about $34, uh, in order to be able to do well. Yesterday was Whiting's Day. Uh, by the way, the, one of the worst performers in the S&P in the first quarter was Diamondback. Obviously, Noble was really bad. Uh, it, it, it's really rather extraordinary that Devin, once at one time such a responsible company, so overreached. Uh, Apache! Apache used to have these tremendous international assets. They doubled down for Alpine High, thinking that it was oil in the western part of the Permian. It turned out to be natural gas. The Mexicans didn't want it. Bingo, they write it off. Well, that's how you get APA at BAD. Hey, Jim, uh, in terms of the broader market, how are you handling this bipolar nature where some mornings we come in here, we're talking about vaccine trials, we're talking about therapeutics, testing, uh, diagnostics, uh, and then other days, it's obviously, I mean, a jobless claims today is it's a number that's just hard to look at. Boy, we balance these things, don't we? Uh, you stop. Uh, last night, someone said to me, I mean, I said, Dr. Fauci, he seemed incrementally more positive. We can't look. You can do all you want. You can listen to Cuomo and the ventilators. I'm still trying to double check that that so few people live if they're on them. You can follow every little, little hand signal. Well, Fauci's right behind Trump, so you can't see him. Where you can focus on the companies themselves. And the fact is, is that most companies are beginning to suspend their guidance because they have no idea how they're doing. So you have to say, OK, who's got a good balance sheet? Because the good balance sheets are going to come out to the other side. Oliver Chen, one of my favorite analysts at Cowan, he's starting to talk about, will Gap make it? Will, J will Nordstrom make it? Uh, will Macy's make right. it? Why? What do they all have in common? Balance sheets that we don't necessarily want to have if we're someone at home trying to pay our bills. Yeah, well, when you don't have any real customers coming into stores because many of them are shuttered at this point, it does make life very difficult as a retailer, guys. Uh, what I continue to also hear, again, for us to be focused on is another area of concern is those retailers not paying rent to their landlords. Right. And the impact that's having certainly on the commercial mortgage-backed security market, not to, which is the debt backing up any number of those landlords or securitized uh, uh, not to mention the impact on the REITs themselves, of course. We've talked about it many times, Jim, this idea that you're going to need forbearance all the way up because along the way somebody gets hurt. There are so many paths that have been created as a result of this crisis that you have to keep going down to try to understand what the true implication is going to be, whether it is something like real estate, whether it is something like obviously oil and gas and where that goes, or even something like, guys, uh, the media business, which you know I follow closely, the fact that you have all these networks out there, for example, that aren't programming any live sports because there is no live sports. Right. And what's happening there if the cable companies say, hey, we don't want to pay for your very expensive service, 
Mr. ESPN or Mr. SNY or MSG, and then they have to go to the teams to get recompense. Again, the paths here all lead off places that we're still trying to understand. It is so hard to try to figure out the ramifications. I spend so much time saying, okay, let's say someone doesn't go to Gap stores. Does that mean Gap stores then defaults, or does that mean that one of these REITs then makes a deal with Gap and they stay in, but their numbers go down? What happens at Tanger Factory Outlet when you talk to PVH last night, like I did uh, with Manny Chirico, and their stores are closed? How does that reverberate? Who ultimately owns the, uh, the debt? And then we have bankers who come on the show, and it seems like they're kind of insulated, but are they really in a Secretary Mnuchin lining up a credit line with the, the Fed. All I can tell you is if you try to unwind these things, it's almost easier to unwind some of those incredibly difficult mortgages that we had in 2007, 2009 than it is to try to figure out who ultimately is on the hook for gap stores if they don't pay. Or Cheesecake right. Factory, uh, David. Th- That's a restaurant, David, with a very big right. menu. And you get a lot of calories. I just always want to fill you in on what these companies do. Cheesecake is not only they do, they actually have dinners, okay? But, boy, they stop paying. Check, please. No. Yeah, Jim, uh, there's so much news in retail. You mentioned uh, you talked to Manny, which we'll hear in just a moment. Amazon says it has filled almost all of the 100,000 jobs that it announced last Ooh. month. Ross Stores is cutting, is furloughing. Uh, you got Macy's being kicked out of the S&P. And then, of course, you talked to PVH last night, Manny Chirico, who himself has tested positive. Take a listen. I think we have a tremendous amount of uh, capability to weather the storm. But no retailer, uh, no apparel retailer, is built uh, to be shut down. And that's what we basically are right now. We have our online business but that's doing really well. But uh, our stores in North America, Europe, Asia, and Brazil uh, are closed down because the government's made the right decision. Unbelievable. Hey, Jim, his staff's trying to manage inventory uh, from home. He himself is being isolated from his folks uh, it is hitting everybody in, in different ways. And how did he get discovered that he had it? it- he went to Montefiore Hospital. Why? Because he's on the board. What was he doing? Bringing an order that he had put together from PVH for gowns, for masks, because that's what we're short of. This, this is the kind of American hero that we're dealing with who doesn't even know how to be a hero, doesn't know to him, doesn't even know that, yes, he got sick, he's at home, he's still working. And what's he doing? He's trying to bring the so-called PPE that we keep talking about to Montefiore. Montefiore, a hospital that was in the paper the other day, saying that they're working so hard, trying to meet all the patients. I am not from the Bronx. Uh, they are a very non-promotional hospital. But Manny is a hero. There's so many heroes. And, and when this year is over, we're going to see a lot of business people who are going to come out, unlike 2007, 2009, as being the people who really did the great job through this pandemic. And, you know, guys, a lot of those people also and this is, I don't know, Jim, what you know, your conversations are like with people in the business world, but they are already trying to look beyond the current crisis to yes. hopefully what is a day that is not that far away where we are, uh, have contained the virus and potentially uh, don't have to be as concerned about it uh, as we are right now. But how behaviors are going to change, right. how those companies need to change in order to meet the changing behaviors uh, of consumers uh, that are uh, going to be with us for years well, to come. David, Obviously, we're very lucky. We, we talk and think about the workplace a lot. We, Sorry, Jim. Yeah. We have the very best person to ask about the change. 
uh, and that is the CEO of McCormick. Because you know what? When these people are at home and everyone's working at home, they have to eat. They have to snack. They have to do something. And I don't, I'm not telling you, Dave, to go for a cup of Luckin coffee because I'll never see you again. But uh, just stay here and listen to this yeah. and then get in with me, okay? The Luckin's a good tease for David. Uh, Lawrence, it is so great to see you. And you are the man of the hour because we're all eating at home. All these businesses have everybody at home. Is consumer behavior changing and will it ever be the same? Hey, Jim. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. And listening to the comments that you had about some of those other industries, it makes me glad to be in the one that I'm in. Um, before I go to your question, I just want to, I've got to say right up front, though, I want to first express our deepest sympathies to all those who are affected by COVID-19 and thank those who are working on the front lines to keep people safe through this, uh, through this uh, crisis. You know, our fundamentals are really solid, and, and, and consumers want flavor. They want great taste, and it doesn't matter if they're cooped up at home. Um, you know, they're, they're still going to want delicious foods that taste good, and, and we're there to provide them with those uh, with those flavor solutions. So let's try to figure out the uh, the mosaic that you have. You've got a very big at home business, but you also have a food service business, which is being hurt, obviously, because the institutions that you serve are not doing as well. And then you also have you, you have a business basically where you're, you know, people just. Well, let's just put it this way. You're manufacturing food and nobody can use it. I'm talking about something like what you have in Europe. But it looks like to me that all of those industrial so-called service businesses are less than 25 percent. And that the consumer business, which has historically done terrifically in a recession, could be the star for a long time. Tell us about March and tell us about the numbers that you're seeing, which frankly are incredible. Yeah, there are two cross currents that work here. So on the consumer side of our business, which, you know, food away from home uh, impacts about 80% of our, of our total company business, that part is just on fire right now in, in March. Um, you, know, through, you know, through the first part of March, the measured sales through stores are up over 75%, uh, which is just incredible in a, in a business where single-digit gains um, are, uh, are considered exciting. And some of the stuff that's taking off really reflects the fact that, that people are cooped up. They want things to cook for their kids for lunch, things that are ingredients that are used in, in activities. You, you wouldn't believe the number of requests we've gotten for, for recipes for slime and window stickers. Um, the, uh, it, uh, our, our recipe mixes are up uh, over 100%. It's, uh, it's a staggering thing. Well, it's funny because it seems like that people have decided – when they stay at home, they not only have lunch, they snack all day, which also plays to you. And I'm thinking these are the new way that we handle our day. And McCormick is integral to it, which is so why it's why it's so hard for you to keep your stuff on the shelves in the, in the uh, supermarkets. Yeah, and it even goes beyond the shelves, Jim, because um, on, the, on our business to business side, uh, we make most of the seasonings for the snack industry. And so. You know, that snacking behavior at home uh, goes you know, straight to our products. You know, we like to say whether you know it or not, you've probably eaten something flavored by McCormick today. Now, the last quarter uh, was a complicated one, and I thought you explained it very well in your conference call. People didn't realize how big a China business you had developed and where it was really headquartered. And it did hurt your numbers, but it sounds like it's coming back. Tell us about your, <laughs> your Wuhan experience. Well, you know, Jim, when I, came, when I last spoke with you, it was in January, and this whole situation was just starting um, in China. 
And, uh, you know, we talked then about the priority being the health and safety of employees and the quality of integrity of our product. We have three plants in China, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Wuhan, right there at ground zero. So we've lived all phases of this, uh, of this crisis. Um, you know, our China business is coming back. Um, all of our facilities are open. People are back at work. We're operating uh, normally. Um, the demand for the retail uh, products, uh, the, you know, the brands that consumers here in the U.S. would recognize are on the shelf over there, um, is through the roof. Food service is coming back slower, though. Um, the quick service restaurants and, and food service uh, restaurants, you know, regular food service restaurants are open. Um, largely, but customer traffic is building. It's going to take a while for that to rebuild. So what happens? You've got, what, 118 facilities. You've got more than 40 manufacturing uh, 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 just factories. But you've got that one in Europe that's gigantic. Can you make something else there? Because I know that uh, it just seems your company is so committed to to communities. You have always been a community person, obviously talking Baltimore here. But in Europe, what can you do with that factory to keep people busy, get people to uh, get people jobs even in the interim? Well, you know, I, I think that what you're thinking of is our, we have a large condiment factory uh, in the U.K. that, uh, that supplies the quick service uh, restaurant uh, industry. You know, and right now, um, there's not a lot of demand from, the, from, uh, you know, from uh, that, that part of the industry. And you know, we think this is a temporary phenomenon. So, you know, the, you know even though the plant is not, uh, is not running production, you know, those employees are still being, uh, being paid. Um, you know, we, we have a long history as a company of uh, having a long-term perspective on our people as assets and not costs. We know this is a temporary situation uh, that we're, that we're going to come through, and, and, and we're, we're taking care of, care of those people. In the rest of the world, we are pretty much able to repurpose just about anything uh, that's targeted towards the, that food service sector, back towards retail products, or even making, taking our food service production and, re, and supplying club store uh, packs from, from, from one, those lines. And one of the things, I, I want to just compliment you because this, this acquisition, obviously, that people were uh, second-guessing of, uh, of your hot sauce of Frank's. Uh, i got to tell you, Lawrence, I was on Amazon for a five-ounce bottle of Old Bay hot sauce, 39 bucks, seven-day seven wait, and it's a third party. Is there any way for you to be able to meet the demand for I think is probably the most successful product in history? Well, I promise you, we're not the ones price gouging on uh, on that one. And uh, and 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 the uh, Old Bay hot sauce uh, is has become a little bit of a collector's item, and we'll definitely uh, ramp that up. But uh, to your point about that acquisition, um, Frank's Red Hot is through the roof. It's up well over a hundred percent. In, uh, in, in, uh, in March, as consumers are, are stocking their pantries, and even French's mustard is up over a hundred percent. Wow! So, you know, those are this is a great time to be in those businesses. Yeah, Lawrence. So I bring it home. I have three bottles. My wife doesn't know it's like fine wine. I mean, this is like Camus from uh, the uh, uh, when you're uh, Napa, and she just puts it on everything, and it's empty. I mean, she's going through all three bottles. She had no idea that she was pouring something that was worth so much. So please make more. <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. We will uh, definitely do that. But look, you know, I want to make sure that everybody knows that we're really focused on, you know, the, the, the safety and the health of our employees and making sure that, that the quality of our and integrity of our products, um, you know, stands the test of time. You know, we have two principles uh, that, uh, that we stand by at, at all times. One is the power of people. The other is the taste you trust. 
and we're not taking any shortcuts, you know, during this uh, during this time. You know, we know food supply is critical. Um, we've got some real heroes working uh, in in our in our in our plants and in our distribution centers to keep uh, America and the world in supply of, uh, of of our brands and our customers' brands for whom we're keying, supplying key ingredients. Well, and we're really committed committed to that. Well, Lawrence Curtis, want to thank you so much, CEO of McCormick. Someone wants to know what to buy in recession. You buy that stock. I found French's mustard for buck seventy nine at Walmart. I couldn't believe it. Lawrence, thank you so much for being on the show. Back to you, Carl. All right, Jim, great interview. Uh, thanks very much. We are getting some Q1 numbers out of Ford. For that, we'll turn to Phil LaBelle this morning. Morning, Phil. Good morning, Carl. Ford Q1 sales in the U.S. coming in a little bit better than expected. Still a decline like the rest of the industry being hit hard by coronavirus shutdowns, meaning people aren't going to the dealerships, so the dealers aren't buying new vehicles. A decline of 12.5% for the first quarter. And again, that was better than the expected decline. Edmonds had it falling for Ford 14.1%. Guys, last night we got the official sales rate for the first quarter. It was uh, coming in at its lowest pace, a little over 15 million uh, since uh, 2012. But the monthly sales rate for March, that's the one that's getting a lot of headlines today. The worst since April of 2010, coming in at 11.35 million vehicles as a sales pace for the month. And it will be bad in April as well. Guys, back to you. All right. Uh, Phil, thank you very much. Uh, Jim, for the uh, for March month on month, you're looking at the declines of I've seen two numbers, 27 and 35 uh, this morning. Yeah, it, these numbers are, are staggering, staggering because there's a big chain, as we were talking about with David just a second ago, the chain of mortgages uh, and who owns what and who's going to go bad. I mean, the companies Ford is in a, in a huge assembler. Uh, the companies that uh, that are, get hurt by Ford's numbers are incredible. And by the way, Ford. Uh, talk about companies whose stock price I don't like in terms of where it's headed. It's got that Macy's feel. This is Ford. I mean, the one that didn't need aid during the 2007-2009 uh, downturn. So let's hope their sales rebound because those numbers are just not sustainable. Hey, David, how's that luck in doing? Can you get us on? Yeah, let's talk <laughs> luck in, guys, because, I mean, it is obviously it's you know, in, in this, in this uh, incredible uh, torrential downpour of news, it may be not that significant, but it doesn't help. Uh, luck and coffee, of course, you may recall when they went public at the New York Stock Exchange. By the way, Jim, a lot of things that you've been talking about for some time have been proved correct. And one of them, I think, here is certainly the lack of transparency that you've always pointed well, to. You mean like the fact that I said that your numbers Chinese. were phony? Is that what you're... And they were furious at me. Chinese companies, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, it's really hard for me. I can't pat you on the back from here anyway. Whether it's (laughs) I don't want you touching me, you shatter. Or a warning about Corona, I think, long before other people were taking it quite as seriously. Um, But on this one, let's just get to the news because the shares are stunning, uh, down uh, some 80 plus percent this morning after the company identified. I did the currency conversion. It's about three hundred and ten million dollars. What they're talking about in fabricated transactions, essentially, that took place between the second quarter and the fourth quarter of 2019. They have set up an independent special committee to oversee the internal probe, excuse me, of these audit issues. Uh, They have accepted the recommendation to suspend certain senior members of management as a result so far of what they've seen. Uh, And they say they're going to take all appropriate actions and things of that nature. But you might imagine this is going to have a uh, take a blow to uh, many of the Chinese listed companies that we have seen really in a procession that was never ending at the New York Stock Exchange, of course. Uh, And uh, luck in a competitor to Starbucks, Jim. 
Um, and perhaps they're a beneficiary here. You want they to were look telling at it that me. Way, at they least. were telling me there's no way because that maybe Vulcan their numbers could do were. Yeah. Numbers. <laughs> they were right. saying that's not possible. It's like five people, every single person in China having five cups of coffee. They were so wise to these guys. Oh my God! What a bunch of hose bags. <laughs> yeah. And there yeah, were people uh, who were short the uh, stock. There also there were a number of significant hedge funds that we know well that were very much proponents of Luck and oh. Carl, uh, which again is going to just be shockingly uh, lower this morning. Not for for good reason, given all their numbers are now in question. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Starbucks uh, is extending the the closure of their U.S. Dining uh, to May 3rd, uh, probably not a surprise given how the shelter in places have evolved over time. We do want to get to Wilfred Frost, guys, this morning, who has some news on Jamie Dimon. Hey, Wilf. Hey, Carl. Yes, indeed. So, uh, good news. Jamie Dimon, uh, the chairman and CEO of JP Morgan, is back at work, uh, albeit working remotely like uh, a large portion uh, of the company. Therefore, again, full uh, CEO as opposed to temporarily handing over the reins to his two presidents and COOs. He described uh, the current environment as unprecedented times, and he had a message as well saying, quote, my hope goes out to all the individuals and families most affected uh, by COVID-19. There are some thanks in there for his workers, uh, who he said are working uh, hard to protect fellow citizens uh, while working to support the financial system, and he expressed uh, his pride in them. Now, specifically on, on the bank and what it's doing at the moment, he said, as one of the world's largest financial institutions, our actions are critical to keep the global economy going from processing $6 trillion in corporate payments each day uh, worldwide, keeping more than 3,900 of our branches open uh, to meet individuals' financial uh, needs. Uh, he said, the countries and citizens of the global community will get through this unprecedented situation but it does serve as a vivid reminder that we all live on one planet. He says J.P. Morgan Chase will play its critical part in helping the world recover our extraordinary capabilities, prepare us for difficult times like this. We will rise to the challenge. He also said, quote, I want to thank you all for your sweet well wishes you sent my way uh, after my emergency surgery. He says, I've been recuperating well and getting stronger every day. I'm happy to be back uh, at work this week. So that's from uh, Jamie Diamond, Chairman and CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan. It's, uh, of course, firstly, good to hear that he's back and, uh, and healthy. And I'm sure many shareholders of J.P. Morgan and, frankly, of, uh, of other banks as well will be pleased to know that he's back at his desk, albeit his, his desk at home, guys. It, I, I think it's important. There was a time when he came in and bought a lot of stock. I know that's probably the last thing I was when he just came back to work. But what, one thing that we've really been missing are, since there's no buybacks allowed, bankers coming in and buying their stock, except for uh, Charlie Scharf. And I wonder whether they think it is a buy or more importantly, whether they think that someone's going to pressure them to get rid of their dividends and therefore they can go even lower. Uh, A buy of stock here by Jamie would be incredibly significant, given the fact he called the bottom last time around. Any sense on whether he actually focused on that at all? Uh, Not at the moment, uh, Jim. No, I mean, uh, interestingly, on the company dividends, both Mike Corbett to you yesterday and James Gorman to me, confirmed that they won't be cancelling those, which is, uh, I guess, a small step. But I I couldn't agree more. Personal purchases by executives would be a huge vote of confidence. As you alluded to, Charlie Sharp of Wells Fargo has done that. Uh, For the other banks at the moment, they're in quiet period now. Earnings uh, begin April 14, uh, and that will be a a huge moment, not just because, of course, it may provide an opportunity for some of these guys to, to buy stock. Of course, even if they're thinking about it, they won't be able to tell us 
that until April 14. Uh, and but but earnings season, I think, will be really interesting, uh, guys, because we may hear a sizable amount of write downs uh, because of potential risks of non-performing loans. But that number, you know, may be smaller than some people's worst case uh, fears. So we'll really have to wait now until we get to earnings for those granular. Uh, numbers, whether it's stock buybacks or, or earnings and write downs. But uh, I, I feel like the tone from Mike Corbett yesterday, the t- tone from James Gorman yesterday, and we'll be listening eagerly to David Solomon, was relatively encouraging relative to the pr- share price we've seen in the banks. Jim, you brought it up with City, you know, down 50% peak to trough. That, that paints a dire scenario. The tone is uh, a bit better than that. Back to you guys. All right, uh, Wilf, good stuff. I was great with Gorman yesterday. Of course, we had Corbett yesterday as well, and we will talk to David Solomon in a few moments. Uh, Jim, uh, about leverage ratios and dividends and what Goldman in their bank note this morning is calling the, quote, burned down book value metric, which, as Wilf suggests, uh, says that maybe things are not quite as bad as the most dire scenarios. Well, I think we've now heard from a lot of the bankers, and, and that's good because the fact that they're coming on and telling a story uh, it keeps it's very different from the old days in 2007, 2009, where a lot of bankers were hiding. Uh, I, I know that J.P. Morgan always felt that if you had the original, that you have, you had to talk about it, then obviously you didn't have credit. But I think this is different. I think that these I, Mike Corbett, that interview with Corman was great yesterday. Uh, hopefully our, we deliver on Solomon, uh, hoping that Charlie Scharf comes on. I know he's a new guy. But, you know, you're really starting to hear that it's different this time in the sense that they do have capital and don't confuse them with Europe. Now, we know that a lot of people drew down the revolvers, and that's, that could be painful. But when you look at what happened to Europe, they never recapitalized. Uh, Europe is really being revealed now as the sham that a lot of us thought they were. And I like the fact that even if there is any chance that we get an antiviral, if there's any chance that some of the things that we hear anecdotally are working to get people out of the hospital, if there's any chance that we bend the curve, then this group, which has been one of the unbelievable bear market, actually may be attractive. I don't think it's attractive yet. David, you and I both know that there are hidden things yeah. in every single bank that neither of us have thought about that come back to haunt every, every time. But do you think it's going to be a little different from 2007 to 2009? I do, and we've made that point a number of times. We do know the banks are far better capitalized. We do know that they have taken a, a great deal less risk over this period. But your point's a good one, Jim, and it's not lost on me, certainly, because I've made this point so many times. You could have looked at all the filings of Merrill Lynch and never had a clue, never had a clue what they were really doing in terms of the risk they were taking on uh, in their portfolio of CDOs and other um, mortgage-connected securitizations. And so let's keep an eye on that as we listen to an opening bell here, of course, and get started with trading this morning. Let's keep an eye on something we've been talking about a lot, Jim, which is uh, the CMBX, the CMBS portfolios, the lending to real estate, the lending to energy. Uh, It doesn't mean by any means that these banks are not going to face a difficult time, but certainly one expects that they are in a far better position than they were Uh, in 2006 and 2007, heading into, of course, the financial crisis back then. The 2016 drop in oil that took it in February to 26 bucks scared a lot of these CEOs in the oil patch, and they really kind of just fled from it. So I'm I'm trying to figure out where the money is. We have not talked at all about private equity. 
which I think we may discover is more of an Achilles heel than we realize. Private equity was down there in the Permian spending like crazy. And uh, David, you yeah. have insight to private equity. I don't have. Uh, and I just want to know, are they doing as well as they keep telling me? Are they still kings or are they suicide kings? Yeah, listen, I think in any portfolio, there are huge problems that they are focused on. Uh, there's no doubt if you're a large private equity firm, you're going to have your share of difficulties. By the way, it doesn't even mean it's an energy. It could be in anything consumer related at this point where you're going to have a tough time. That said, Jim, they're also sitting on top of a lot of cash for many of the private equity firms. Now, they're, you know, if there's a deal out there that they were relying on bank financing for or thinking about, they're not going to do it. But what they are focused on right now, I think, is so many companies that are in distress and a real opportunity to either move into their high-yield bonds and get the returns of which you would not have seen previously unless you were actually doing a full deal, or providing equity in some fashion, again, a la Warren Buffett kind of preferred numbers, where you can get an enormous return. So it's a mixed picture like right. so many other things. Private equity is certainly going to have holes in their portfolio, but real opportunity as well. You know, and, and Carl, there's this human side that really just keeps coming back. You get these CEOs and you're thinking, well, they're how are they doing? And you've got, say, this morning, uh, the government FTC going after Altria and Jewel. And, and then you remember, mm. no, wait a second. We, we, we've got a prominent CEO who's got, COVID, uh, Howard Willard, uh, Manny yesterday. We, we have a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of prominent CEOs who are, who are symptomatic. It, it's so different. It isn't just, well, geez, you know, how's that company doing? It's, well, how's that CEO doing? I, this is a new world for I, me. I, I, I know. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, apparently still expressing mild symptoms. Netanyahu, I'm sure you guys saw, uh, telling NBC News that he is self-isolating. Uh, so, um, Jeff Shell, our own CEO here at NBC Universal. Uh, so, your point's a good one, Jim. I, I did want to ask you with this relatively flat open. I know you don't like bond guys uh, opining on stocks, but Gunlack did say yesterday, "I'm indifferent between 18 k, 19k, and 22k on the Dow because the gap, in his words, is really just the bid ask spread." Bond traders understand this from experience. Are, I mean, <laughs> how much latitude? How much latitude are you on equities, at least on the Dow? I like where Jeff is. There's no distance right now between me and Jeff. And we do go back and forth. And he's quite a gentleman. And uh, I think I still expected to get the retest. Uh, I do think that any market that is driven by the price of oil is going to prove to be wrongheaded. It should be driven by earnings. And right now, there's this big dichotomy between uh, companies that are demonstrating good earnings power and companies just saying, listen, we're not going to even talk about earnings anymore. And I'm waiting to see whether the companies just say, listen, we pull guidance. They used to be punished horribly. The day when we see you pull guidance and nobody cares is the day when we start thinking about, you know what, after COVID, this was what could happen. The after COVID quotient is still not with us because we expect it to sweep the nation. But if you get any sort of bending in the curve, we're going to say, well, wait a second. What was that guy? He suspended. But you know what? Maybe it's better. And I think the most prominent one is Disney. I mean, Disney. I was just going to say that. Right. It's firing on those cylinders. Because of the conflicting. Yeah. I mean, we got conflicting calls today. Uh, David, you probably saw this. Atlantic uh, says the negative price action is overdone. They go to overweight. Guggenheim cuts the target from 160 to 100 because they think that the closures uh, are there's a good chance we could be looking at larger, longer park closures than we think we think right now. 
Parks are very important. We know that, right? What, almost 40 percent, I think. Uh, so not insignificant. And again, back to the theme that we certainly talk about and we'll be talking about a lot more. How will behavior change? Will people be willing to congregate in the same way that they did previously? Will it take time for that to come back, even when the parks and everything else reopens, I think, is a key question. Let's not forget ESPN, an important contributor as well to that company right now. I mean, they're airing stone skipping, you know, and there's a question certainly as to whether or not the cable operators are really willing to pay or whether they see an opportunity to potentially return money to their subscribers in some fashion. Um, So there are plenty of pressure points. Studios closed right now. They're not making new productions. At the same time, of course, everybody's home streaming. Disney Plus, an incredible start and most likely a great deal of momentum that's been created there. Um, guys, uh, we were talking earlier with Wilf, of course, about Jamie Dimon being back at work. Um, uh, James Gorman joining uh, Wilf yesterday uh, from Morgan Stanley. So, we're, And we've had so many notables as well here. And so very happy as well that this morning we are now joined by David Solomon, of course, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who joins us from the company's headquarters, uh, where I would assume it's a fairly lonely place. David, it's uh, great to have you this morning. Thank you for being with us. Uh, good morning, guys, and thank you, uh, thank you for having me. And it is, um, it is, it is relatively quiet here at 200 West. We uh, we have about 98% of our employees working from home, working remotely. But there are some people that do have to be in the building to to move money and for processes. And so, you know, I've been making my center of operations uh, from here. Uh, there are other people in the building. I feel like I should be here, uh, and it's certainly a very, very safe place to operate with so few people in the building. Yeah, we are following similar protocols at CNBC. David, so much to ask you about, but let me just start off, broadly speaking, in terms of how you're viewing risk right now at Goldman Sachs, uh, a company that has been known, of course, for managing risk better than perhaps any of your peers. What is right now a real focus for you at Goldman Sachs in terms of what represents the biggest risk? Is it perhaps the CMBS market and real estate? Uh, is it private equity? I don't know, but I'm curious as to where your focus is. Well, when you, have, when you have a change, when you have a change in the economic environment, and especially one that's happening as swiftly as this change has happened, it creates a, a real change in the perception of the risks that we all hold across all asset classes. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do with our clients across banking, market clients, asset management clients, is be in a position to talk to them about how they can manage, pair risks, think about risk on an ongoing basis. And I think one of the things that makes this very, very difficult is the uncertainty that exists. And so it's very, it's very easy to think about the direction of things when it's easier to plot a course. And obviously here, the uncertainty is very high. So we've been advising clients and We've thought about this ourselves. You've got to be very, very prudent and thoughtful um, about the risks that you're taking and try to wait and evaluate and understand, you know, how confidence will reoccur and how we'll ultimately get the economy going again. Yeah, I would assume one thing you're advising, as I hear from so many other uh, uh, bankers, is if you have an opportunity to raise cash, you probably should do it. Do you agree with that? Are you seeing a lot of your companies trying to increase the liquidity, certainly those who are investment grade, hitting the capital markets if possible? And there's no question that if you're running a company, and in my discussions with, with CEOs that are running companies, one of the risk management perspectives that every company, every business, even small businesses, 
has to focus on is do I have enough liquidity to weather the economic environment that we're faced with. And so certainly if you have an opportunity to uh, increase your liquidity, to access the markets, to work with banks, to access liquidity, it's very, very important that you re-underwrite your plan and you have adequate liquidity to weather through this. We will, we will get to the other side of this, but you've got to be in a position where you have adequate liquidity to make sure you can manage through it. We're spending a lot of time with clients helping them. As you, as you referenced, David, the investment-grade market opened up quite strong over the course of the last two weeks. I think you've heard this from a number of guests. Record issuance last week, record issuance for the month, record issuance for the quarter. And so high-grade companies have had access. But one of the things now that's going to be important is to try to provide opportunities for other companies that are below investment grade, for smaller businesses to have access for capital. And that's something we're very, very focused on. You know, David, you mentioned, of course, getting to the other side of this. Goldman has always been fairly good at adapting to changing conditions. I can recall in 2009, after the financial crisis, the company had, I think, what still stands as your record year, $13.4 billion in, in profits. What are you doing right now to position the company for what you believe will be certainly a changed environment once we are past the coronavirus? Well, I think, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion uh, coming out of this crisis, as there is coming out of any crisis, as to what has to change what adapts in society, how we change in society so more people can participate, how things can be better, what can we learn from this? There will be a lot of that. For us at the moment, we're extremely focused in a, in a different environment where people are working from home. How do we serve our clients? How do we make sure that we can show up for our clients and help them at this difficult time? And also, because this is such a humanitarian crisis, how can we as an organization be helping those in need? How can we find ways to support those that are vulnerable and underserved. And so at the moment, we're focused on our people, we're focused on our clients, and we're focused on helping those that need. And, you know, I think there's plenty to do on those three things, and there'll be plenty of time when we come out of this, you know, to focus on the way we and all other businesses will need to evolve. You know, David, I know you've had people uh, there, of course, given the ability you have to analyze things, analyzing the virus, trying to understand the progression, the spread. Um, what are your best guesses in terms of when we will get to the other side of this? We're obviously in the midst right now of unprecedented conditions. This unemployment claims number we got an hour or so ago is truly just shocking in so many ways. And many are preparing for what they believe will be a very deep recession. What are your views on that and on how quickly we're going to come out of this? So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm obviously not a medical expert, although I, I find myself you know, talking to lots of medical experts. And I think it's important um, you know, to listen and to, uh, you know, try to learn and try to understand. Um, but things are still very uncertain. And so I think it's very hard to predict. I do personally think that we will move forward as we continue to build more confidence around our healthcare resources. And so I think it's very, very important that the focus that's now on improving our healthcare resources throughout the country so that we can help people in need right now, is super important. Testing is very, very important. There are a lot of advances in testing that are coming very, very quickly, but creating better access to testing, which creates better information and better data. These are the things, kind of the underpinning of the healthcare services we're providing that will allow us to build confidence. And then ultimately, as that confidence is built and we have a better understanding of the trajectory of the virus, it will give us the opportunity to start to slowly open up parts of the economy, to find ways to have people back participating safely 
so that we start to get things going again. You know, there's no there's no question, uh, David, that um, that we were late to this. We were slow to adapt. But I really see now lots of focus. I see focus from government. I see enormous focus from the private sector. And I know with the resources we have, the ingenuity that we have, the creativity, you know, I'm very optimistic that we'll make progress. It's hard to predict, but I'm optimistic we'll make progress and start to plot a path forward in the coming weeks. All right, David, it's Jim. Always Hi, good Jim. To see you. How you doing? I'm good. Last, How are you? Well, the last time I saw you was Super Bowl weekend. I think it was the last weekend in this country. The last well, weekend we'll ever remember. As it, being... it, seems like, uh, it seems like a long time ago, and I'm glad you can see me because I can't see you. Well, that's <laughs> But I wanted to ask you, I, look, I, full disclosure, I worked at Goldman, and it's a huge position for my charitable trust. You announced a stunningly big dividend hike last, uh, last summer. Uh, it, can you tell me whether that's now under reevaluation, or can you reaffirm your commitment to the dividend? Sure, sure, Jim. And, uh, and uh, when, we, when we announced our dividend hike last, uh, last summer, and you'll, you'll know this and you'll recognize this, we were in a place where our dividend um, as a portion of our return of capital was out of sync with where the rest of the industry was. We were much lower, and we had always relied very, very heavily, almost entirely, on share repurchase as our form of capital return. And we thought there needed to be you know, more of a balance. And, and, uh, and so we brought our dividend up so it was closer to, but not quite where the rest of our peer group would be. You know, I think the discussion about dividend right now is a discussion about capital return. And one of the things I know that you saw, because as an industry, the banking industry wants to be in a position to lend, to provide liquidity, to support our clients. The group of large banks made a collective decision to stop our capital return through buybacks right now, which is a significant portion of our capital return. I know dividends are getting a lot of attention because over in Europe, there's been quite a bit of attention, and European banks are in a different place than U.S. banks. And European banks also have dividend, which is paid once a year, is the vast majority of their capital return and a very, very significant part of their earnings. You know, here in the United States, it's a much smaller part of capital return. We've already, as an industry, stopped a significant part of capital return, so we're in a position to lend to our clients. But it's my expectation we'll continue to pay our dividend. Okay. And uh, the Goldman I know is still the same Goldman, I believe. It was only 900 people, and I was there, knew almost everybody's name. But the commitment to the employees was always extraordinary. Can you take a pledge that you won't lay, any, lay anybody off in the next three months? I've been very, very clear to our people that during this crisis, people's jobs are safe. We're incredibly focused, Jim, on our, on our employees and our community. We're trying to find ways to add support that we're giving. We made an announcement earlier this week that we're increasing the amount of emergency home leave to two weeks that people can take. People have parents or family members. They need emergency home leave, so we've increased that. You know, I've been personally focused on the fact there are all sorts of people in our Goldman community that, that might need support. We have people that are security guards that work for us that work in the cafeteria and food service, that work in cleaning. These aren't people that are Goldman employees, but they're part of the Goldman family and community. And we're working with the vendors uh, and the unions to make sure that if because of what's going on, their incomes have been affected, we're making up the difference. So we, we care deeply about our employees, and we're very, very focused on their safety, their security, and their well-being during this crisis. Hey, David, it's Carl. Um, 
You uh, rolled out this morning a plan. uh, Good to see you. uh, A plan to give aid to small business, 300 million, act as a a, a complement to the federal program. At the same time, uh, there's reports out of Reuters that some U.S. banks are nervous about participating in uh, the small business uh, loan program for fear of legal risk, financial risk. What are you telling small businesses right now about the opportunity to get loans uh, and how to navigate what's going to be an enormous amount of red tape? Sure. So, you know, first, we've been very focused on small businesses at Goldman Sachs for quite some time because we think small businesses are such an important part of the overall economy. I think you're all aware of our 10,000 small business program, which has given us great insight into small businesses uh, for, for a number of years over the course of the last decade. I participated earlier in this week in uh, what I'd call a town hall session where we had 1,500 of those small businesses on a conference call with myself and Senators Cardin and Rubio, who, as I think you know, lead the small business you know, subcommittee that was very, very involved in the small business provisions that are in this bill. This bill obviously provides $350 billion, which I know we all want to get quickly into small businesses that need help that need support, and we're committed to do that. Um, A lot of small businesses will access that through their existing banks. They'll go to their existing banks where they have checking or they've got a relationship. We have always been focused on community development financial institutions, which are kind of a layer below banks that in particular serve small businesses that might not have the same access to the banking system, Uh, in more vulnerable communities. We've supported these CDFIs for a long, long time. And so as a part of our effort to participate this and get capital to these smaller businesses quickly, especially in these more vulnerable areas where they might not be as connected to the banking system, we pledged in that pledge $25 million that will go to supporting the infrastructure around CDFIs, to give CDFIs the opportunity to ramp up quickly and get more money deployed And then in addition, we've pledged $250 million of our balance sheet that can be deployed through these CDFIs to small businesses. So from our perspective, we're excited to play our role in helping get our capital on our balance sheet deployed out to these small businesses that are in such need right now. And so that's a that's a focus. And uh, and we've been working hard at that. Uh, David, you also have insight into the consumer now that I think you might not have had as an institution not that long ago, given your efforts in retail. Of course, Marcus, the name that we know uh, at this point as part of that. What are you seeing uh, on that front in terms of uh, balances, in terms of need on the credit side? Uh, And what are your expectations there for that business, given this economic turmoil? Sure. Uh, we, we obviously uh, are focused uh, on our Marcus platform and our consumer business. You know, I'd start by saying, and I, I know you all recognize this, it's still a relatively small business when you think about the big consumer businesses that are out there. But I think for one, on the deposit side, we offer a very, very attractive offering. Right now, an overnight government guaranteed deposit on Marcus is 1.7%. A 12-month CD is higher than that, I think 1.8 or 1.85. And what we're actually seeing, because people are raising cash and they have cash, we've actually seen during the course of the last few weeks people coming to Marcus at an increased pace. And so we've seen our deposit flows have actually increased in, uh, in Marcus because we think we have a very compelling offering. On the lending side in Marcus and also on our credit card business, we're certainly seeing change in behavior very quickly. Through the credit card, we have some insight. And as you would expect, 
spending, particularly around travel and leisure and and restaurants and, you know, being out in entertainment has plummeted. But you've seen some pickup in spending on staples, food services, those kinds of things. Obviously, given the pressure that's on everyday individuals because of this crisis, you know, there will be pressure on uh, on those businesses. And one of the things we're very focused on is helping consumers. We have a program where people can opt in to defer their interest payments on their Marcus loans or their credit card loans. And it's very simple. You just text into Marcus or text into Apple Card and you can defer your your uh, your interest at this point in time, right. your interest in payments. And so, you know, we're very small in that space, but we're trying to do our part and we're watching it quickly. But it's it's very easy. It's very early to see big, big patterns with our yeah. small data set. Um, you know, speaking of patterns and behavior, David, uh, you mentioned at the top of the interview, 98 percent of your employees are not working from your from your headquarters or are working remotely or from home. Once we get through this, is that going to become more the norm? Are you expecting significant changes in sort of work behavior? Uh, and how would you approach it at Goldman Sachs? So the, the first thing I just have to say is I'm so proud of our people at Goldman Sachs. If you had told me, David, you know, even even a couple of months ago that we would have 98 percent of our employees working remotely and that we'd be able to serve our clients, take care of our people, you know, participate in the economic system, play our role as smoothly as it's going. And I won't say it's perfect. There are certainly, you know, bumps in the road. But their, their commitment, their, um, their flexibility, um, it, it, it's really been awesome. And I'm so, so proud of our team and what they're doing. You know, obviously, when you go through something like this, you know, it forces you to ask questions and think about things differently. We've certainly had certain parts of our business where people travel and they work remotely regularly. But I think what's what's interesting is it creates a new lens to think about things that can continue to make this a very attractive place for people to work. It can change the way we have our real estate footprint over time. But I think those are longer term things. Um, I'm not uh, you know, I'm not at this point a big believer that the shakeup or the change once we get to the other side will be swift and dramatic. But it will be gradual. And, you know, it will, I assume, uh, increase the amount of video conferencing. It'll make us more comfortable with tools like that. It'll make us more comfortable in providing more flexibility to employees, which, by the way, makes this a more attractive place for people to work. So we're thinking about all those things. But those, I think, David, are more down the road things to think about right now. Again, focused on our people, their safety, their health. How do we help in communities? How do we help people in need? How do we serve our clients? And there'll be lots of time when we get through this, when we get to the other side to think about those other things. Yeah. And we hope there's going to be time in between for you to join us again, David, uh, as we continue to obviously watch an unfolding, uh, well, very difficult time here in the United States and around the world. But uh, thank you for taking some time. David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, guys. Please stay safe, stay healthy. And I appreciate you having me today. Um, Jim, you heard some uh, some positive things in terms of the dividend there uh, from from Mr. Solomon when you asked that question. Yeah, yeah. What do you? I thank heavens he finally he explained it to us. Britain just and the European banks they give away too much in the dividend. Uh, and, and what's so important about what he said is there are a lot of people looking at Wells Fargo's dividend and they're thinking, well, that can't last because something's going to happen. Uh, and, and Goldman doesn't have the big dividend that it, even though he, got, uh, he jacked it up 47 percent last year. 
But these, if there's going to be any saving grace to owning these stocks, is maybe they can maintain that dividend. I thought James, I thought James Gorman yesterday was so good with Wilf, and Michael Corbett was so good with us. Maybe it is. I know you're supposed to say it's different this time. It's really been costly. It's been one of the most stupid phrases I've ever had, and I've heard it since Dow 1100. But I thought this was very compelling, and I know people hate the banks, but maybe when they actually report, we will see the non-performers not spike, or maybe we'll see that there's more of reserve. I don't know. Carl, you listen to David. He's pretty confident. No, I and, and luckily for us, I mean, the way earnings season is stacked, that'll be our first peak as to what uh, what the quarter looked like. Guys, as we were talking to uh, to Solomon, Arkela Tausche with the report that Mnuchin did hold a call uh, with bank CEOs yesterday to talk about not just the economy, but that participation in the SBA loan program, uh, which we just asked David about. So, Jim, that'll be key. I mean, well, maintaining look, I- maintaining. Uh, there's a big fear that when you get, you know, everybody's going to apply tomorrow. I mean, it's so generous. I've got to tell you, I mean, you're eight weeks. If you stay open, you get a check back for what you pay for the employees, but also for a lot of your overhead. So, I mean, this is a program that if it's executed will be I'm not nothing's a savior because you need to have customers. But you will be able to, in uh, in very short order, according to Secretary Mnuchin, get this money back, and the banks have to be ready for it. I think it is. If there's anything that's going to tide us over, it is this uh, that particular aspect because 85 percent of America really works for small, medium-sized business. So. Uh, I hope it works. It's got to be smooth. The banks have to be ready. I know someone was critical of me on Twitter that I went to bank and the bank says they're ready for me. Uh, okay, so yes, I have a decent account. But uh, I've got to tell you, I think they're going to be ready. They, they got the call. You're going to be ready for everybody. So this is the program that is going to tide us over while we wait for uh, something to work antiviral, whether we whether we get something that's a vaccine. And I know everyone is so negative that anything can happen, including Governor Cuomo yesterday when he said that only 20 percent of the people live off a ventilator. I'm, I'm not getting that from a New England Journal of Medicine article this morning. It, it, it's too early to tell that it's that slow, that it's that poor. But we got to start thinking about what it's going to look like on the other side. And, and it's not not too early to do that. And I, I feel heartened that the government's doing some things that make me believe that there'll be businesses that do open and, and exist, Carl, uh, that not everything's going to be boarded up like I'm starting to see in Brooklyn, where I see places boarded up like it's going to be a hurricane. That's got to change. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Guys, I'm thinking of the, the two stories uh, that we did not get to. One, Jim, is we, we didn't mention uh, Boeing's memo to employees about these voluntary buyouts. We're right. going to get more details about who's eligible in a few weeks, but uh, that's 160,000 workers right there. And then David, too, Zoom uh, announcing that 200 million daily actives up yeah. from 10 million in December is just a reflection of exactly what we're doing with each other right now. It is. And, and what we've been talking to so many of these CEOs about as well, this change that uh, that has taken place. Yeah, a tenfold increase in their in their user base, Carl. And of course, there are some security flaws they're trying to deal with in terms of people joining some of these conversations that are not wanted. I've been hearing a bit about that, but they say they're working on that. But that does go to sp- and speaks to the ability, really, of the economy to keep functioning in some manner with everybody at home. Which goes back to, you know, a call the president had a couple of days ago with uh, all the CEOs of the major broadband and cable providers and and uh, and 5G providers in the country as well, because 
Things are working in that way. It's pretty remarkable, but it certainly points to the fact that you can expect there's only going to be increases in usage uh, as this becomes more the norm than not. And as we continue to at least try to focus, Jim, on some things that will stay with us after this crisis passes. Uh, And I hope you're right, Jim, that we get those antivirals soon. And I hope you're right that we get the tests out there that we need and the antibody tests and so many of the things we need. There still seem to be some real hiccups in the delivery right now from the government, at least based on some, you know, uh, some people I know are trying to develop these antivirals and running into uh, territory problems between FEMA and HHS. Who has, you know, who has actual jurisdiction over the emergency response and antivirals. So let's hope it all gets streamlined and gets moving as fast as possible. Yeah, so many tests, which we're clearing out, you keep checking. I've got to tell you, you see Zoom is down today off that it, it, that's such good news but i've got tonight if uh this were a mad dash or if this were uh, stop trading i've got ring central tonight rng they're going to announce a gigantic competitor to zoom they have the ability to be able to do it because they are nationwide vlad schmunis has delivered over and over again he's got the infrastructure to be able to do it so they're gunning for zoom by the way you know who else is gunning for zoom which is it, uh chuck robbins with WebEx, which is much more of a, of a gigantic enterprise, but talking about about security. So I happen to love Zoom. Use Zoom. I had a Zoom uh, cocktail party last week. Not bad. Not bad. You know, David, you like it. You didn't have to go out. Uh, but it, it was. But look out for Ring Central when they come on tonight, because they really they're they want to they want to anti Zoom Zoom. And uh, who's Zoom and who? I don't know. It could be Ring Central. <laughs> Well, uh, SpaceX uh, does have some privacy concerns about Zoom. So those are things that we're going to have to wrestle with uh, in the days to come. But that looks like a great show tonight, Thank Jim. Thank you. Bad uh, hey, money, of course, you know, Carl, uh, comes up. I have a daughter who's an introvert, uh, like David. And she's telling me it's an introvert's paradise. <laughs> an introvert. <laughs> you said you didn't, you said you oh didn't like God. people. You on air said you didn't I like know, people. I know. You keep reminding well, me. God, I was, that was a know, seminal kind of moment being... in TV. Oh, it was a little sarcastic. There was some truth to it. You know that. But, man, you make me sound like such a misanthrope. Um, although here I am sitting alone at my kitchen table, you know, so I You're guess that heaven. speaks for itself. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.